As we come to consider God's Word this morning, I invite you to turn to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 8. Our scripture reading is going to be through the first uh, ten verses of this passage this morning, reading from the English Standard Version translation. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we would ask for your Holy Spirit to open up to us out of the scriptures that we have just read. uh, What it is to learn of Jesus here, the truth that is in Jesus, that would enable us to understand your gospel more deeply and would cultivate in us a desire to conform to the image of your Son so that we might walk in the ways that are pleasing to you and be salt and light to this generation. We would ask this, Lord. We would pray for this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Over the last uh, 13 years, uh, when I was teaching at the Christian high school and teaching the subject of ethics, I would come to the time in the year that I would be teaching just war theory. And sometimes on a particular day, I would begin with this kind of question. If you were a prisoner of war in World War II, where would you prefer to be? In Germany? In Japan? Or in the United States? Well, the typical response from the students would be something like this. Well, what would be the difference? What would be the difference? And then it was an opportunity to instruct that there would be a great difference, a considerable difference in terms of the camp that you would be interned in. I would point out that anyone's sane choice would recognize that the Japanese prisoner of war camps were intolerable. The German camps, very harsh but endurable. 
the United States prisoner of war camps, the choice of anyone who would desire humane and tolerable conditions. The Japanese camps are known to history as having been intolerable for several reasons. The terms of the Geneva Convention were completely ignored, which meant that the Japanese made up their own rules and inflicted punishments within particular camps according to that particular camp commander. It was the norm of the Japanese camps for there to be random beatings and tortures. The treatment was customarily sadistic, brutal, and unpredictable. The British government sources concluded after World War II that never before that, and in fact never since that, did such large numbers of British soldiers and Allied soldiers ever be subjected to such extremes of geography, disease, and man's inhumanity to man, what was suffered and experienced in the prisoners of war of the Japanese prisoners of war camps during World War II. The United States, unknown to many Americans, had some 700 prisoner of war camps, primarily established to help the British house the great numbers of German soldiers which they were capturing but had no place to put. The United States camps held strictly to the rules of the Geneva Convention only bending those rules occasionally for reasons of either utter necessity or actually in the direction of greater humane treatments. For instance, in New Hampshire, there is a camp called Camp Stark. Not because the conditions were stark. It was just the name, Camp Stark. It was in a lumber mill town. The town lost half of its lumber mill workers to the draft during the war. Now, the Geneva Convention did not allow prisoners of war to be put into forced labor. Because in the history of warfare, prisoners of war in forced labor were in fact made human slaves and were totally and completely expendable with respect to the war efforts and worked to death. So we saw customarily the case in the Japanese prisoner of war camps. But at Camp Stark, the prisoners were required to work to replace the employment deficiency in the lumber mill due to the war and the fact that the war effort needed the lumber mill to produce the paper that was still needed for the war effort. But this work was exactly the same kind of work which the men who were drafted themselves had customarily performed under exactly the same kinds of conditions, never treated any worse than a regular American worker would have been treated. It was not dehumanizing slave labor, but actually it was that kind of labor that the Bible recognized as intrinsic to human dignity. The work was humane. The treatment of these soldiers was humane. And the relationships that developed between the prisoners 
and the camp guards, the soldiers, and the citizens of the town were extremely cordial. The townspeople's often brought gifts to these German prisoners of war, most of whom, by the way, were not Nazis. When the camp finally closed in 1946, some of the prisoners had lost their homes and their families in Germany, and they wanted to stay in the United States. But the War Department said no. In 1986, there was a 40-year reunion held in that town with respect to Camp Stark, where townspeople and former guards and five former prisoners came together to commemorate that time. Why were American prisoners of war camps so different? Why were German prisoners of war camps more harsh and cruel yet not as bad as it could have been. Why were the Japanese camps the worst imaginable? The answer is this. The Japanese ethic of culture and war did not possess, now listen clearly, the Japanese ethic of culture and war did not possess the virtue of compassion especially any sort of compassion toward one's enemies. The German ethic of culture and war was in the throes of an evolutionary Nietzschean experience which was corroding its cultural Christianity and the ethic of compassion. Well, the United States during World War II was the most religious and the most Christian culture of all the nations involved in World War II. And the ethic of compassion still ruled over how Americans saw other human beings, that even our enemies were entitled to be treated as those who bore the image of God. Now, this analysis, while true, is entirely ignored by the cultural despisers of Christianity. Yet, it would have made so much sense to Mark's audience. Because these Christians, living in the Greco-Roman world of their day, would have seen in the policies of their own empire a close parallel to the culture and ethic of the Japanese in terms of the non-existence of the virtues and practices of compassion. And so this story, and every story about the compassionate actions of Jesus as the Son of God would have been incredibly good news because in these stories of love and compassion, Mark's audience was being introduced to the love and compassion of God. That's going to be the bulk of our message this morning, the heart of what we want to say. When I had originally looked at this passage and, and uh, began to analyze it and to come up with the title, I thought I would deal with the compassion of Jesus and then I thought I would deal with the forgetful faithfulness of the disciples. But that's going to have to wait till next week. As I worked through the passage and into the passage, it became apparent to me that this 
ethic of compassion that we find Jesus displaying here was so incredible to the audience of Mark in a way that we cannot hardly understand because all around us, even today, in our culture, which is post-Christian, which is so thoroughly post-modern, the stamp of the ethic of compassion of Christianity is everywhere evident. Such that evolutionary social biologists continue to look for what they call the empathy gene. Somehow they think that the godless, purposeless evolution of human beings brought about, genetically speaking, in the competition of natural selection, a gene that made us kind toward each other to be, in fact, to have some kind of, of adaptive survival value. But the truth of the matter is, every social biologist who's working on that theory today is a product of Judeo-Christianity, a product of the influence of the gospel and Christianity upon Western culture. Because you would not find such a thought form in the minds of those who have never been touched by the ethic of Christianity, the ethic of Jesus, the ethic of compassion. No Greco-Roman philosopher in the ancient world ever valued compassion as a virtue, but rather a weakness. And so we come to this passage, and we look at it this morning, and I want us to recognize, first of all, out of what we see in Jesus here, that in the kind of love that Jesus displays, we have the reflection of the love of God. Now, first of all, Jesus in this passage says, I have compassion on the crowd. Now, literally, literally what the passage says from the Greek is, my heart goes out for the multitudes. This is commonly in our culture called sympathy or empathy. This idea that we're feeling what other people feel. And here we have Jesus, his response upon looking upon the multitudes. Here is Jesus seeing and feeling on the basis of the actual conditions of what the people are experiencing. They had been with him for three days. Uh, they had not intentionally supplied themselves so that they would be with him for three days. They were held in some kind of rapt attention to Jesus during this time. And here they were, all of their food supplies gone. They are hungry in the extreme. And Jesus sees this. Jesus feels this. His heart goes out to them. And it's significant because the incarnate Christ must have felt this physical hunger as well. And yet his heart goes beyond his own need. His heart goes to that of the crowd which he sees. Furthermore, it's, it's very significant that we recognize once again that the area that Jesus is ministering is, is the Decapolis, the, those ten Greek cities that had been established a couple of hundred years earlier, these are not Jesus' Jewish kinfolk. As we mentioned before, Jesus is outside 
of his customary mission to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's not ministering to those who were Jewish, but in fact he's ministering to those who are pagans and who've been attracted to Jesus because of the wonderful things which he is doing, the miracles that he's performing, not attracted to Jesus necessarily because of some kind of spiritual hunger, which they think that they're going to find satisfied in Christ. These people are the kinds of people that culturally the Jews consider to be their enemies. At the very least, their attitude toward these people was, these are those who are unclean. So even though Jesus is, as it were, outside of his primary mission focus, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Jesus has compassion upon the lost, the lost children of Adam. What Jesus displays here must be understood as a genuine and perfect and true reflection of the love of His Heavenly Father. Christ, in His compassionate love, feels the woe of broken humanity. He sees the need. He sees the difficult circumstances that fallen human beings experience. His heart goes out to them. Now, the second thing we find in this passage is that Jesus, having felt this way, his heart going out to the crowds, he wants his own disciples to feel the same way. We must not miss this, that Christ is modeling and teaching by example the kind of virtue that he expects the gospel grace to work in his followers. This is why he turns to them with his compassionate concern, and he says to them in verses 2 and 3, uh, see what I see and feel what I feel. Because he says in verse 2 and verse 3, these crowds have been with me for three days. They're hungry. If we send them away, they're going to faint on the way. I want you, disciples, to see what I see. I want you to feel what I feel toward them. Look and be attentive to the fact that they are here listening to the messenger of the kingdom and they are listening to the message. And Jesus inviting them to do what he's done. Don't judge their motives. But look and notice what they are doing. And notice too, look and see, their interest has been so strong that they have been willing to neglect their physical needs for three days. They are hungry to the point of need. And so Jesus says, see their need. And he's also saying, feel compassion. Feel kindly toward them. Feel a sense of caring toward them. Have a heart that goes out to them because you see and feel their need. Jesus wants his followers to see 
broken human beings as he sees them. Jesus wants his disciples to feel what he in his incarnate love felt. Jesus wants his followers to have the compassionate love of God in their hearts. Now, this is in fact, and for you who are trying to follow an outline here, actually my last point. This is counter to culture. It's not only counter to culture, but it is counter to the very nature of the fallen condition. Remember a couple of important matters about the Jewish culture of Jesus' day, and then a few more remarks about the Roman, Greco-Roman culture of the ancient world. In regards to this matter of compassion, in regards to the matter of, of having such feelings toward others. Among the Jews, the religious leadership of the Pharisees, and they had the greatest influence upon the multitudes, they had perverted all ideas about caring for the poor. Now you and I would just second nature think we care for the poor out of compassion. Right? Not so the influence of the Pharisaical teachings upon the Jews themselves. Listen to how Jesus recognizes what motivates the Pharisees, the religious leadership, which of course then highly influenced the people, his fellow Jews. It was in fact the desire to show a form of compassion artificially as religious showmanship. So Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, the first four verses, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward with your Father in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. And so your giving will be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is Jesus' indictment of the religious culture of the day. It was a sham compassion. It was not compassion in the truest sense as an act of one man loving another human being who's less fortunate than himself. It was not an expression of love your neighbor as yourself. It was an expression of a desire to show yourself as somehow religiously, self-righteously superior to others and to make sure that they saw it and to make sure that God saw it so that you would have those kind of spiritual brownie points with God. The Greco-Roman culture itself was even more extreme in this. Because while charity and almsgiving was practiced among the Jews, it was not practiced at all in the Greco-Roman culture. Remember that in the 60 million population or more of the Roman Empire... 
better than 60% of them were slaves. And it was a culture where the elite controlled the multitudes. Compassion in this culture was not recognized as a virtue. The introduction of compassion into the culture of the Greco-Roman Empire was entirely, completely, the influence of Christianity. In fact, Western culture, which is a mixture of Judeo-Christianity and Greco-Romanism, the virtue of culture which came to dominate Western civilization is entirely attributable to Jesus and the charitable and compassionate activities of the early Christians. Alvin Schmidt, in his book, How Christianity Changed the World, again, a book not read by the cultural despisers of Christianity, uh, notes that with respect to unwanted babies, with respect to most of whom are girls or children with disabilities, or to slaves who were found to be sickly and dying, uh, or with respect to people in cities who are being ravaged by plagues, or beggars on the street, or widows and orphans, all of the poor generally, the Greco-Roman world carried an attitude of cruelty, harshness, uncaringness, and had no conception of love toward those whose circumstances were less fortunate than your own. They did not consider such people to be worthy recipients of love. And the greatest minds of the Greco-Roman world, from Plato as a philosopher, Tacitus as an historian, Seneca as an orator, Cicero as an orator and philosopher, the greatest minds of the Greco-Roman world did not recognize compassion and charity as virtues. Rather, they endorsed those attitudes which looked down upon compassion as a human weakness rather than something notable and praiseworthy in itself. The gospel message then presents Jesus Christ crucified for our sins, resurrected for our vindication by a God who has love and compassion even upon his enemies. And this love in Jesus lived out among men was a love filled with compassion toward the broken, the fallen, the marginalized, the weak, the foolish, the needy in this world. And those who were saved by this gospel found themselves transformed in the likeness of their Savior so that the hallmark of the Christian life in the first three centuries was, in fact, a compassionate love, not just within the fellowship of those who believed, but consistently and constantly toward those that society was casting away. That's what was the power socially that carried the gospel of a crucified and resurrected Savior forward. It was a message 
of a God who loves, a redemption fully adequate and sufficient for the needs of our brokenness and fallenness, proclaimed by those who lived out lives of exceptional love and concern and compassion toward others. This was the gravity that pulled people to the cross and to the church in spite of the persecutions which Christians experienced again and again in the first three centuries of the gospel. And that leads us to some important lessons to learn out of this passage. What is foremost here? The love of God, which can be described in theological abstractions, should never be an abstract thing for us. The reason why we see four Gospels, the reason why we should be reading the Gospels again and again and again is because the goal of your salvation to the ultimate glory of God is the transformation of each of us into the likeness of Christ. And therefore, God has created us for kindness. He's created us for kindness, for compassion, to have a heart for other human beings, to care about others, but especially that society has marginalized and disregarded and thrown away. Which means we also must never do some of the things which have happened in the history of the Christian church. We must never separate the love that we find in Jesus from the love of God the Father. One of the earliest uh, errors within the Christian church that the church fought so strongly against was the Marcion heresy, that one of the aspects of it was to say, there's the God of the Old Testament who's harsh and cruel, and then there's the God of the New Testament who's at basically Jesus. No. The Old Testament makes it so very, very clear. The New Testament makes it very, very clear that this God is one and the same, a God in three persons incarnate in Christ. And so we find statements in the Old Testament such as this in Psalm 103. As a father has compassion upon his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He is mindful of their frame. He remembers that they are but dust. There's kind of a modern error as well that we find often in sort of liberal Christianity. That the Old Testament, that harsh, unbending God has been replaced by a New Testament picture of Jesus who doesn't have any concern for rules. He just wants to love you till you feel better. That's, that's not the true Christ as well. The great challenge before us to follow Jesus is to recognize that the God of Scripture, incarnate in His Son, is in His very nature a God of justice and holiness and love. That the reconciliation of a God of love and a God of justice is only found at the cross. 
where that which God hates is laid upon His Son so that Jesus experiences the fullness of the wrath and curse. And the great compassion of God then comes through the message of the cross to a broken and sinful world. But not only to a broken and sinful world, but to those that the Father has given to the Son, the message finds a heart prepared by the Holy Spirit so that that gospel is embraced. Faith is placed in Jesus. New life is given. Justification before a righteous God. And then a life in which we are transformed to be like the Son. Over these studies over the last several weeks, as we've been looking at what is Mark presenting to us in terms of the gospel, we have seen Jesus acting where there's no faith. We've seen Jesus acting where there's small faith. We've seen Jesus responding to the faith of others for those who had no faith. What lies behind all of this, Jesus working in the hearts and lives of people? It's what Mark presents here. When Jesus looks upon us, his heart goes out toward us. And he wants those who know Jesus that our hearts would go out toward broken people as well. So that we would say, Lord, If you give me the bread, if you give me the fish, then I can be part of those who feed those in need. That was the conviction of the early church. When they saw the discarded babies, when they went into cities where there were plagues and people were dying, when they did what no pagan would ever do, it was the conviction that the Jesus who fed the multitudes had a heart for people in need. It was their calling to go where no pagan would ever go in order to show the love and compassion of Christ. You often ask, Christians often ask, in a first world situation like ours, why does God make life so hard? I tell you why. Because life is very hard for those who aren't Christians. And you find grace in the hardness of life so that you can tell those who are experiencing the hardness of life that there is a God whose grace is sufficient for the hardness of life. And if you see those in need from the standpoint of yourself having been in need, Christ gives you compassion. And Christ gives you conviction that the gospel that works in you is the gospel that can work with them. And so, we are left in this world to bear witness to the Savior who has this kind of love 
We were left in this world so that God might continue to grow in us a likeness to his son. That we might be, to the glory of God, graciously used by him. Let's pray. Father, consecrate us, we would pray, into this calling that we have as Christians to become like Jesus, to desire to become like Jesus, to know that this means love and compassion toward others, to recognize that you have created us for kindness, a good kind of kindness, a robust kind of kindness, a strong kind of divine love kindness that we would care for others, that we would see people in their distress, we would hurt with those who hurt and care for those who need caring, and that through us the grace of the gospel might be increasingly displayed. And even as we come to the table this morning, we would pray that this might be so, that you would work such things in us as we celebrate the table that is the table of the great compassion of a Father in heaven who would give his Son as the Lamb that would rescue the souls of men. O Lord, consecrate us. In Jesus' name, amen.